So summer is coming to an end. How do people feel about that? I am different. I am excited because I like the fall. That's like my favorite time of year. And I'm actually already beginning to think about Christmas. My totally favorite time of year. I love the meaning of Christmas. I love the music of Christmas. I even like the snow that comes like a month after Christmas, unfortunately. But even with that snow, it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I love the fact that I have a snowblower now and I can clear out my driveway easily with the snowblower. But I always have this struggle every year, even with the snowblower, because I get to the end of my driveway. It takes like an hour, hour and a half to do it all. And then I look at my neighbor's driveway and it's completely full of snow. And I have this inner battle of, should you go, is it your responsibility to go over there for the next hour and do their driveway too? Uh, My neighbors, the great people, she's uh, older, uh, a widow, really not able to do it herself. Uh, Her son has really bad back problems. So I struggle with this. You know, I want to go inside Yet I see this driveway facing me. And it brings up the question of how do we relate as Christians to our community? Are we just responsible for our families or for other Christians? Or are we responsible too for the wider community, for our neighbors? This is a question that I've I've noticed getting asked more and more in Christian circles. There was a book that came out just uh, recently. It's called Overrated. And Overrated is kind of his description of the church's job at responding to the wider community. And the question that this author is asking is, are we more in love with the idea of changing the world as Christians more than actually doing it? It's fun to talk about, but actually putting it into practice is another thing. Now, there's a few reasons for this when you think about it. Um, One is just, it can be difficult to think about responding to our community because we like comfort. We work hard. We want to come home and rest. I was recently on vacation in upstate New York. My in-laws are deciding to sell their house. And there was a lot that's going to go into just organizing things to get ready for selling the house. And Debbie, their daughter, was helping them with a number of things. So my task was to spend a number of hours each of these days just watching the kids, namely pushing the baby back and forth on the swing for hours. I was not in a good frame of mind during this time. I was grumpy. I was in a bad mood. I was tired of pushing a baby on the swings. And I just thought, this is my vacation. I'm supposed to do what I want to do on my vacation. I work hard. I'm supposed to just, the women in this room are just hating me more and more as I say this. (laughs) But I'm just being honest with you that this is what I was thinking. And uh, it's just indicative of just sometimes in life, you just think, yeah, serving your community, that's awesome. But the actual actuality of doing it is hard work. Also, sometimes we don't serve our community because we just don't know what the needs are. We think, I live in kind of an affluent area. I live in the suburbs. Are there really any needs in my area? This came up in a song by a guy named Derek Webb. This is what he said. He said in the song, poverty is so hard to see when it's only on your TV or 20 miles across town. Sometimes we're just not thinking about needs in our community because we think, well, I I didn't see this stuff. I don't see anyone who really needs me to be responding to them in my community. Also, um, we can get into situations where we think maybe we don't need to respond because it's just a distraction 
from what my real calling is as a Christian. My calling as a Christian is to share the gospel, not to be serving my broader community. I mean, the Great Commission is about making disciples. It's not about being a soup kitchen. So don't we have governmental programs to be doing this sort of stuff and serving my community? All these sorts of things can go through our heads and can keep us um, either from responding to our community or just confused as to what we should or shouldn't be doing. So what I want to do this morning is really think through what is our responsibility? What should we be doing as a church in terms of this broader community that we're a part of, this Bucksmont community that we're a part of? And to look at that, I want to open up our Bibles to uh, Jeremiah 29. So please open up to Jeremiah 29. As you open up to Jeremiah 29, I want to make a quick plug. If you're opening up to this book for the first time in your entire life, or if you're thinking, man, I, I haven't been to these prophetic books, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, all this stuff, in a long time, you're not alone. And there's going to be a discovery class in the spring where we're going to be looking at these different prophetic books, and we're going to be looking at this theme of prophecy. And I think it could be really helpful to you because it's, it's easy for us as Christians just to spend time in the books like the Gospels and Paul's letters and not focus as much time in this really important section of Scripture. Before we look through Jeremiah 29 and see what it has to say to this question of responding to our community, I want to give you a little bit of background on where the author is coming from. Jeremiah, as you can see, is part of the Old Testament. And one of the themes in the Old Testament is that God says to his people, the people of Israel, if you will follow me, if you will be faithful to me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to put you in a land where you are going to flourish. It's what we call the promised land. But if you don't, if you reject me, if you serve other gods instead, then you're going to find yourself being taken out of your land, going and being in exile in a foreign land. And this is precisely what happened to some of the Israelites, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, these people had left their God. Jeremiah had been telling them not to do so, telling them judgment was coming, but they still were idolatrous. They still left God. And Babylon came, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came, took the exiles back to Babylon where they were being dominated by a foreign power. When you get to Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is no longer kind of talking so much about the judgment that's coming since the judgment came. Now he's saying, you've got a job to do now that you're in a foreign land. You've got job to do as people in exile. You're having some other false prophets who were telling you, don't worry about it. Just kind of hang out with other believers. Don't worry about the Babylonian people. God's going to rescue you in two years. Jeremiah's saying, no, 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 no. You're going to be there for 70 years. Settle down. You've got some things that I want you to be doing. That's the context for this letter in Jeremiah 29. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 9, where Jeremiah is going to tell these exiles what he wants of them. And it's going to have direct connection to what God's calling us to do in our Bucksman area. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. 
And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. One of the words that should jump out to you as you read through that passage is the word exile. It appears in verses 1 through 9 five times. And it should jump out to you as a Christian as well, because in the New Testament, we're referred to in 1 Peter as exiles. We're elsewhere called pilgrims or sojourners. We're called, as Keith has mentioned in his series on Philippians, citizens of another place, namely heaven. A theme in the Bible is that believers are not at home in this world. And yet, though we're not at home in this world, though we're exiles, there are certain ways we should be living with that identity as a people who are in exile. And Jeremiah is going to tell us three things we should be doing. And the things he tells the people of Israel are the things that I think we should be doing when we think about this question of how we should respond to the broader community that we're a part of. The first thing that he says is for them to basically be a part of their community. Be a part of their community. This was not something happening naturally for them. Again, they were being told that they should leave, that they shouldn't stay in Babylon. They should just be focused on waiting for God to take them away. But what does Jeremiah tell them to do? He says, build houses. Plant gardens, have kids, have grandkids, basically live a normal life in this foreign place. And why are they to do that? They're basically to do that because God has a mission for them in this place. God wants to use them in this place that they're living. Notice in verse 4, it says that the exiles are those whom I, I being God, have sent into exile. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who really took the people of Israel out of where they were and into Babylon. It's actually God who's done this because God has a purpose for them. Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton College, said this about this passage. Nebuchadnezzar has not carried them off to Babylon so much as God sent them there. The exiles are not captives, but missionaries. And the same thing can be said of us as we're here in our uh, Buxmont region, um, though sometimes we see things that happen in our culture that make us say, we're just exiles, really. We're not at home. That doesn't mean that we should despair because God has placed us in the context he wants us to be missionaries in a foreign land. Missionaries cleverly disguised as plumbers and contractors and social workers and businessmen, and teachers. This is our calling here. Now, how are we to be part of our community, to live a normal life in our community? There are a number of different ways. Um, you can be part of your community by getting to know other parents in your kids' schools, by coaching one of your kids' teams, by getting to know your neighbor, by inviting co- uh, coworkers over to dinner, and all these sorts of ways. You can begin to invest yourself in your community, but you have to resist two temptations when you do that. A lot of Christians fall into one of these two temptations when we try to be a part of our broader community. The first is the temptation to isolate ourselves. Because we don't want to be impacted by the values of the wider world, we can tend to isolate ourselves and to gather into a holy huddle of other Christians. I've quoted um, before from a study done, it's called the Reveal Study that Willow Creek did, and it said the longer a person is a Christian, with each year longer that they're a Christian, the less friends they have who don't know Christ. You You start off, you get converted, All your friends don't know Christ often. Then with each year, you know less and less people. Now, sometimes we have to make those decisions if we feel like the people influencing us are influencing us in a pretty 
significant way more than we're impacting them. At the same time, we need to be cognizant of the fact that if we're not being a part of our community, then how are people in our community ever going to come to know Christ? But some of you might say, well, I don't know that I really ever deal with that. I have tons of friends who don't know Christ. Um, And this might be your temptation. Your temptation is to assimilate rather than isolate. You assimilate into your community to such an extent that when people look at you, they're just looking in a mirror. They're not really seeing anyone different than them. They're not seeing different set of values. They're just seeing their own values in you, and you're a Christian in name only. So we've got to watch out. Are we isolating or are we assimilating? God calls us to neither. When God calls us here to be part of our community, he wants us to be in relationship with people who don't know Christ, but with the values of being a Christian. Uh, A couple of terms have been helpful to me in thinking about this. One book was called Resident Aliens. The idea being we're aliens, you know, we're from another place insofar as we're part of God's kingdom, but we're also residents of this place that we're a part of. Another book referred to the importance of faithful presence, which is to say we're to be present in our community, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, but we're to be faithful within it. We're to have the values of God's kingdom while living in the Buxmont area in relationship with people who don't know Christ. We're to be part of this community. Now, that's the first thing, but it doesn't stop there in terms of what God is calling his people to. If you look in verse 7, he says, you're not just supposed to be part of your community. You're to actually also seek the welfare of the city that you're a part of, where you have been sent into exile. What that means is basically, so your translation might say, seek the peace of your city. I'm calling it just seeking the good of your city. Christians aren't just called to seek the good of their church. Christians are to seek the good of the larger community that they're a part of. This is something that we've talked about a lot at Grace over the years. Um, A question we've asked at different times has been, if Grace Community Church no longer existed, would anyone in our community care? I mean, we would care. We'd have to find a new place, you know, to be a part of of a local church. But would they care? Would they feel like somehow their lives weren't going to be as good because our church wasn't there in their community anymore? There are people throughout history who would say they would definitely care if the church wasn't there. There are stories of the ancient church where there would be a plague that would ravage a community and the Christians were the only ones who stayed to care for the sick because they had such faith and conviction that God wanted them to stay and care for these people that they were the only ones who stuck around. Modern-day hospitals originated in the thinking and mission of Christians. For Christians who were having this impact, their communities would definitely know if they weren't there. But would, would our community? Now, in thinking about this question, um, there's a couple different challenges we have, a couple different things that make it difficult for our church to seek the good of our community. And I mentioned it at the outset when I began. The first is that we think serving the community might be a distraction from our mission to serve the gospel. I mean, to share the gospel. And it is true, there are people who are imbalanced in this. They care about people's physical needs, but it doesn't occur to them to also pay attention to their spiritual needs. But it can work in reverse. There are some Christians who pay attention to people's spiritual needs, make sure they present the gospel, but aren't looking at the actual physical needs that someone has that are right in front of them. We're actually called to do both. It's not an either or, it's a both and when it comes to God's mission for us to seek the good of our community. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us 
do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're definitely to focus first on are we caring for one another as, as Christians. But we're also to do good for everyone, as Jesus called us to love our neighbor as ourself. Love isn't just a means to share the gospel. Love is something that's just a value of the Christian life. Yet at the same time, doing this, showing love to people, is one of the means God uses for us to be able to share the gospel. Even people who don't know Jesus know this. There was an emperor in Rome back in the 4th century named Julian. He hated Christians. But this is what he acknowledged. He said, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, he was calling Christians, provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. The Christians were known for caring not just for their own Christian poor, but for the poor in the communities that they were a part of. And it led to people coming to Christ due to that. Uh, Tim Keller makes a really good point when he brings these two ideas together in a really balanced way. He says, Deeds of mercy and justice should be done out of love, not simply as a means to the end of evangelism. And yet, there is no better way for Christians to lay a foundation for evangelism than by doing justice or service to our community. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Serving our community isn't a distraction to sharing the gospel. It goes hand in hand with doing this. Now, the other thing that becomes difficult for us when we think about seeking the good of our community. And another challenge I brought up at the outset was that we don't know what the opportunities are to serve. And we think, I don't know that anyone's in need on my street. Everyone seems fairly well to do. I came across a recent study. It was a study called Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. And this is what they said. By 2012, there were more people living below the poverty line in the U.S. suburbs at 16.5 million than in cities. 13.5 million. These challenges are reflected in virtually all of the major metropolitan areas around the country. Uh, I can attest as a social worker that there's a lot going on in the suburbs that we just don't always see. There's a lot going on in the Bucksmont area that we don't always see. But even with that the case, we don't have to only be serving people who are in poverty. There are practical ways we can be seeking the good of people on our street in a variety of ways, regardless of how much money they do or don't have. The question is, are we looking for those opportunities? And then are we taking them? Am I looking at the driveway next to me that's full of snow? Or am I just trying to look the other way at the neighbors that are always doing their their driveway right away? You know, those are the things. And then am I responding to the need? Those are the questions we have. That being said, you go to work every day, you come home, um, spend time with your family, and you, you may just think, I don't know what I'm going to I don't know where these needs are. I mean, you're telling me they're there, but I don't know where they are. And for that reason, one of the things we've done as a church is we've started a community outreach team. And we've wanted to do this as a way of learning about what we can do to serve our community, what the needs are in our community. And we want to assist you as a church in being able to better reach out so that the people of our community would say, if grace no longer existed, we would know. So I'm inviting Beth Wance to come up now. She's part of our community outreach team. And Beth's just going to share a little bit about the team and about, about what you can expect from us moving forward. 
Well, as Dave has asked me to come up and share about what we have done as a team, um, we've come together um, praying about different opportunities that are um, in our community, um, as well as just discussing different opportunities that we've uh, come across ourselves. Um, as uh, Dave has said, you know, it's always been the church's desire to be more involved in the community. Um, and our hope is to develop different partnerships and really make relationships that are more long-term in the community rather than um, just a one-time event type of thing. So we were discussing different uh, possibilities, not limited to anything, um, but such things as like serving the elderly, um, which has been a, a very uh, needed thing um, and sometimes un, unnoticed. Um, other things is just as simple as giving someone a ride to church that may not have a ride to church um, and also serving in our local schools. Um, different projects or anything, different needs that may be out there. Um, so our hope as a team is to um, let you know of the opportunities that come up so that you can serve. So um, our hope is that maybe you can serve, but also just ways that you can also pray for um, our, our serving opportunities. So, Thanks, Beth. If, if you're someone who would like to be part of this team, if this has been on your heart, come let Beth or come let myself know. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you just have ideas that you think of where you say, man, I'd love to see us reach out to this group. Or we have needs, you know, in my neighborhood or my neighbors. Let us know. We want to be a church that does more and more of this. Now, <clears throat> we've talked so far about being part of our community. We've talked about seeking the good of our community. There's one final thing that Jeremiah mentions, though to the exiles, I think is important for us. And it's in verse 7. So read verse 7 again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God wants us to be praying for the community that we're a part of. Remembering that the community we're a part of isn't just the community of other people. It's our own community to the extent that they flourish, we flourish. Now, this is a pretty radical call that he gives people to pray for their community. Because remember, their community now are the people who've dragged them away from their homeland, dragged them in times away from family. These are their captors that they have to pray for. This is kind of an Old Testament counterpoint of what Jesus says in the New Testament, where he says, I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Our calling is to pray for our community, the neighbors we don't like, the coworkers we don't like, the people who frustrate us and annoy us. We're to pray for them. What does this look like? I want to give you a few ideas for what it could look like to be praying for your community. One is um, what Beth already brought up, which is, once a month, we're going to have an update from our community outreach team where we let you know about opportunities to serve, but also opportunities um, that you can be praying for, things going on in our community that you might not know about that you can be praying for. Second, our hope is that our life groups are a place where we don't just pray for our own needs, though that is essential, but we pray for our neighbors, that we get to know our neighbors and pray for them by name, that we get to know 
needs and uh, people who are coworkers, and we pray for those by name. That we would even pray for our governmental leaders, whether we agree with them or not. Uh, this comes from First Timothy. First Timothy two, one through two says, "I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. It could be our governmental leaders who are local, who are national." You've noticed I've put the face of the president behind this scripture verse. And I did that for a reason. There was a conversation I had with a person who's a Christian. And we were talking about this issue of prayer for governmental leaders. And he was saying, I just can't pray for Obama. I can't do it. And uh, he disagreed with the policies of the president. I said, well, there's that verse, you know, in the Bible. It says we're to pray for our governmental leaders. You know, and he goes, I know, but I just can't. I can't do it. And it's important that if the Jewish captives were praying for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, that you can pray for the leaders of your country, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, that you'll pray for the future president, whether you agree with that person or disagree with that person, whomever wins. This is our calling as Christians. And Jesus gave us the teaching and the example. Another thing you can be doing to pray is learning about where other Christians in your community may be praying. For example, Deb was able to join a group relatively recently of North Penn moms who are praying. We're in the North Penn School District, and they're praying for the schools in the North Penn School District. They're praying for teachers. They're praying for students. And this can be an opportunity where you can also be in prayer for your community with the body of Christ across our region. You can be taking part in prayer walks. What is that? What is a prayer walk? A number of years ago, I was in England, and I was studying from some missionaries who were reaching out to the Muslim community there. And these missionaries would just walk through the neighborhoods of where the Muslims lived, and they would just pray for the people who were living there. And this is something we could do in a really organic, normal way. We could be, you know, praying for people. Um in our neighborhoods, by walking through our neighborhoods. Um, So that's another thing that we can be doing as well. Um, So what we've talked about up to this point has been the importance of being part of our community, of seeking the good of our community, and finally of praying for our community. And it's important to realize, you know, we can do these different things in ways that are organic. We can do them in ways that are institutional. And what I mean by that is, Organic, when you leave here, you scatter into different places where you have different spheres of influence and you can be serving your community for Christ in ways that are really individualized, like me in the driveway, or you can be doing so at work in ways that no one else knows about. But we can also be doing this as a church body. We can be doing this institutionally where we gather together, and that's what we're trying to do with our community outreach team. But what we want to be doing as a church is what we've said in our mission, We've said our mission as a church is to live a life of worship together. And one of the ways we do that is to worship God in the world. We don't just want to worship him in spirit and in truth and in our Christian community, but in our broader community as well. But there's something that undergirds all this, which is really important to keep in mind as you leave here, because it can be easy to say, okay, I'm going to go start doing this basically out of guilt. I'm busy, but this guy is telling me that I need to do this. So it's one more thing for me to do. I guess I'll do it. That's one way to think about this. 
But it's important that we think that what, what it means to serve the community isn't to respond out of our feelings of guilt. It's to respond out of God's grace. It's to respond out of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, it's basically responding to what Jesus has already done. It was Jesus who became part of our human community when he left heaven and lived as an exile here on earth. It was Jesus who sought the good of the community he was a part of in really practical ways, washing his disciples' feet, healing Roman soldiers' servants, giving his life on the cross for his enemies. It was Jesus who showed us that way. It was Jesus who prayed on the night before his death for anyone who would ever come to believe in him amidst the trials and the persecutions they would go through. It was Jesus who, while he was dying, prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we talk about serving the community, we're not just talking about making the church a governmental program. We're talking about discipleship to Jesus, who showed us what it means to serve people and love people. So this is my challenge for us as a church, and I'm excited about what the future is going to hold for us. And I invite you to take part in what we're trying to do. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for the truth that we are saved, not by any of the things we do, but by your grace. Thank you also that by your grace, you call us to new life. You call us to imitate your son and to live like him in serving those in need. Open up our eyes to the needs around us. Give us a joyful spirit uh, in serving people, not because it's something we have to do, but it's something we want to do because it gives us the opportunity to show love, show your love to a world that needs to see what that looks like. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.